guess that means it's my turn. I guess that means it's my turn. Let me invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 is where I'm going to be at in just a moment. Thank you for the privilege of being able to come and speak, um, especially as a representative of Marsha's Place. I've been the executive director there for about a year and a half, and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. But uh, I love the work we're doing. I'm thankful for the community that comes around us. Thank you, Grace Point. Um, you are and have been as a church and as individuals in this church incredible supporters of Grace Point through financial gifts as well as through uh, your investment personally. I'm thankful that Emily is a member of our board. Um, she brings such a, a great deal to the leadership of our team, and I'm thankful for that. Miss Deanie, you're over here somewhere. She is one of our incredibly faithful and incredible volunteers every week uh, coming into the center. I know there are others who have done things, and we just cannot do what we do without the um, encouragement, support, and partnership of our churches. And so thank you, Grace Point, for leading that, uh, leading that effort. I'm thankful for that very, very much. I am going to be in Luke 13 this morning, and I'm going to really preach one word to us. I'm going to take a long time to do it, but I'm going to preach one word to us this morning. I'm going to focus on this passage, and this passage is a hard message to preach. It's a hard message to hear. But if we're going to change our culture, if we're going to change our culture from a culture of death to a culture of life, a culture that says it's okay for there to be 60 million abortions in the United States since 1973, and according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-abortion organization, 73 million abortions around the world every single year. Since this is the reality of our world, I think there's one command from the Bible that the church, we need to hear and heed because if we miss this one command we are going to miss everything else if you found Luke chapter 13 I'm going to read the first five verses this morning and I'd invite you to follow along I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version Luke 13 verse 1 there were some in the pre in some present at that time who told him him is Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And they asked him, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Jesus said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those, Jesus continues, 18, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The word I want to focus on this morning and the word that needs to be on the lips and in the hearts of every Christian and every church is the word repent. Jesus mentions two tragic events. The nature of these events are not known anywhere else in Scripture, so we don't really have any historical context to understand them. But Jesus mentions them here. The first one is an execution. An execution by Pilate of a group 
of Galileans who were making some kind of sacrifice that he disapproved of. So at the time of their execution, Pilate, or at least his death squad, took the blood of the condemned and mixed it with the blood of the sacrifices they were making. They were probably executed on the altar of sacrifice they were making. The second incident is an accident that's mentioned by Jesus. A tower had fallen and 18 people perished. Speculated that this tower was part of the wall that surrounded Jerusalem and was near the Pool of Shalom, which was a major source of water for the city. It's also the place in John chapter 9 where Jesus had healed a man born blind. These events, as tragic as they were, are mentioned to Jesus, mentioned by Jesus to demonstrate a point to his disciples. The point is this, they needed to be aware of the false and pharisaic teaching that tragedy only comes as a particular punishment for the worst of sinners. Do you think they were worse than everybody else in Galilee? Jesus' words in verse 3 and verse 5, however, are incredibly telling and incredibly convicting. Jesus says to his followers, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Here's the whole point I want to make this morning as we think about our churches, our culture, in a world that is dark and lost and confused and where tragedy abounds. The solution to this darkness, the solution to this darkness does not lie at City Hall. It does not lie at state capitals or in Washington, D.C. The solution to this problem, the problem of abortion and so many other national tragedies we face, the solution is in this room right here, right now. And 300,000 other rooms across this nation exactly like this one. The solution lies in the church. The church, too often, we as Christians, too often we look at the tragedies of the world and instead of them breaking our hearts, we praise God like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, who said, God, I thank you, I'm not like those other men, executioners, unjust, adultery, or like this tax collector over here. Too often that is our, res our response. Dearly beloved, my message today is that we must repent or we will perish. We must repent or we will perish. It's so easy to become like that Pharisee who says, I thank God I'm not like those other people. Beloved, I hope to share with you today that you and I are those other people. We need to continually repent of ungodly and unbiblical paths and then see how repentance and repentance alone leads to life. So what is repentance? What is this repentance that Jesus is talking about? What is this repentance 
that I'm trying to call us to this morning. We hear that word an awful lot, and many times we think that all it means is to stop the direction we're going and turn around and go into another direction. It's, it's that simple. It is a military term that means to the rear march. If you've ever been in basic training, you know what that means. You're going this way, he says to the rear march, you turn around and you march the other way. In many ways, that's what it is, but folks, it's so, so much more. Repentance will never happen until we love God more than we love our sin. Repentance will never happen until we love God more than we love our sin. Until we come to a place where sin and self and the world is put to death and it's put to death in our lives. We must come to a place of hatred of sin and fully abandon it. Paul tells us to put to death the works of the flesh. He says to live is Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life I live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the repentance that Jesus is speaking of in here. It's more than that military command to turn around. It is a full-on abandonment of our lives, our wisdom, our skills, our needs, our sin, our education, our traditions, whatever it is that's holding us back, it is an abandonment of them and clinging fully to Jesus. It's burning the bridges of false hope, clinging to the one who is eternal hope. Repent. It's so easy for us to call sinners on their sin and condemn them and so difficult for us to call ourselves on our sin and repent I'm going to share five areas this morning where we need to repent we we you individually me individually we corporately we as a body of believers five sins that we need to repent of sin number one is the repent of not talking about sex in church. Sin number two that we need to repent of is not embracing the sexually broken, abused, and confused. Sin number three is of preaching moralism and forming religious comfort clubs and not making disciples to form kingdom cultures. The fourth sin we need to repent of is stopping at being anti-abortion but not genuinely being pro-life. And the fifth sin we need to repent of is missing the gospel. Missing the gospel and replacing it with, with pleas to respond to a lesser gospel that is not a gospel at all. So let's dig in. The first area that we need to desperately repent of is that we simply don't talk about sex in church. Some of you just became uncomfortable because I used that three-letter word. We don't talk about sex in church. This may be a shocking reality for us to face, but sex is real. 
everybody in our church is having sex. You are, kids are, if you're not having it, you're thinking about it. If you're not thinking about sex, you're watching it on TV or on the internet. Some of us are having sex with somebody who's not our spouse. Sex is an incredible part of our lives. And let me just go ahead and continue the shock treatment here while I got your attention. God, God, God created sex and commanded us to have sex. God actually wants us to have sex. As you open up the biblical story, God created man and woman and told them to feel the earth to fill the earth with babies. And he told them as husband and wife, they are to be one flesh. Beloved, there's millions of ways that God could have chosen to have his image bearers reproduce. But he chose, he invented, he caused our bodies to work in such a way that sexual intimacy is the way he wants us to reproduce. And then he made it enjoyable. Proverbs chapter 15, the preacher tells us there, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife, in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And then... Be like, God, this is enough. Then he called it good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, after he created humanity, after he told him to fill the earth by becoming one flesh, he told him to have sex. The Bible says that God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. It is so good that the Apostle Paul commands husbands and wives to take a little break every now and then for prayer and fasting and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 he says all the other times you need to come together he created it made it enjoyable he called it good and we perverted it We sinners have perverted God's good and perfect plan for intimacy. Sex is intended for one man and his one wife in a covenant marriage relationship, and that is all. Everything else stands outside of God's ordained plan for human intimacy. But sin has distorted and corrupted human sexuality both in the process of procreation and for the enjoying of intimacy with your husband and or wife. Folks, I've got a whole message called God wants us to have sex. Maybe you'll let me come back and preach it. Here's the point I want to make. With the exception of naming a few sexual sins and then condemning those who are caught in them and telling our kids to never, ever, ever have sex, think about it, or anything else, the church pulpit is too often silent on preaching a biblical ethic of sex and sexuality. 
We are silent, but the Bible is not. The New Testament alone mentions sex and sexuality over 200 times. That's not counting the Old Testament. So if the Bible talks so much about it, why don't we? Why don't we? Because we don't follow the Apostle Paul's pattern of Acts chapter 20, verse 27, when he says, I did not to shrink, or I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And if we're not going to share the whole counsel of God, including the sex passages in our Bible, then we have to cling to Acts chapter 20, verse 21, what Paul says earlier, is that we have to teach repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to repent of not biblically talking about sex and sexuality in the church. Why is this so important? 2015 CareNet, National Organization of Pregnancy Resource Centers, and Lifeway, the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, did a tremendous study. And in this study, they found that one-third, 36% of women were attending a Christian church at least one month at the time, or at least once a month at the time of their first abortion. One-third of women were sitting in a church within a month of their first abortion. Of the people that women were most likely to discuss their abortion decision with, Someone in the local church ranked dead last. Three quarters, 76% of women indicate local churches had no influence, no influence on their decision to terminate. 64% of women agree that church members are more likely to gossip about a woman considering an abortion than they are to help her. 70% of women who have had an abortion Indicate that, or indicate that their religious preference is Christian. And listen to this. 6% of women who had abortions said the local church encouraged them to have the procedure. 10% of women said the church paid for the procedure. And 9% of women said that they actually drove them to the abortion provider. Now there's other statistics and not all of them are as condemning as these. But I think it is clear that the church desperately needs to teach the whole counsel of God and repent for leaving out a biblical theology of sex and sexuality. And I've got to move on to point number two. We need to repent. We need to repent of not embracing the sexually broken, abused, and confused. That same research indicated that 52% of churchgoers who have had an abortion report that no one at church knows they've had a pregnancy terminated. And the majority of them report that they fear that if they spoke of an unplanned pregnancy or a decision to terminate, the top two reactions from the church would be judgmentalism and condemnation. The raw numbers tell us that 25%, one out of every four women in our nation has lost a pregnancy to abortion. And these women, all of them, and oftentimes the men who are involved with them are hurting. They are desperately hurting. Some may not realize it. Some may even appear to celebrate it. But the church 
too often remain silent or even worse, we condemn and we reject. Now listen, please. We must call sin, sin. In no way am I saying that we should ever condone or embrace sin or sinful actions. But folks, we've got to do it the way Jesus did it. John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well. He does not introduce himself as God and refer to her as a harlot or a tramp because she's sleeping with somebody who's not one of her five husbands. He says to her, will you give me a drink of water? John chapter 8, the religious hypocrites bring to him a woman caught in the act of adultery and they throw her at his feet wanting to stone her to death. He did not get up and put a target on her head. Instead, he, said, he bent down and began to scribble in the sand until all the religious hypocrites left, convicted of their own sin. And then he looked at the woman and said, Go and sin no more. I'm going to get personal on this one, all right? In Matthew chapter 8, when the Roman centurion came to Jesus and asked him to heal his servant, Jesus did not condemn him and say that Caesar was not his president. I didn't vote for him, and the only reason he's in office is because of voter fraud. If you need help, go to that regime. No, Jesus said, I'm going to go to your house. And the Roman centurion said, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Speak the word and my servant will be healed. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And as he walked away, Jesus looked at all of those people around him and he says to the Roman centurion, there is the most faithful person in all of Israel. We've got to do it the way Jesus did it. Are we getting the picture yet? We live in a dark, depressed, desperate world. And for too many broken people, the last place they feel safe is in a church. The last place they feel safe to share their hearts, their pains, their sin is in a church. This past few years, past year that I've been at Marshall's Place, we've served same-gendered married couples. We have teenage clients. We have ladies who are victims of sex trafficking or domestic violence or sexual assault. We have broken women who are caught in generational dysfunction. Women who identify as pagan, Muslim, atheist, Baptists, Catholics, married, unmarried, married but pregnant from someone who's not their husband every single week. I'll never forget the very first per story I heard when I went on the board at Marsha's Place five plus years ago. A young lady found herself in an unplanned pregnancy. She told, tells the story, told the story that she had visited several local churches and in none of them did she feel safe to share her story until she walked into Marcia's place. And there she found somebody she could trust. I'm thankful she found Marcia's place. I'm thankful that last year, in a slow year, due to pandemics and all the other things, 220 clients made 500 visits to our center last year. I'm thankful they find and they trust Marcia's place. I'm thankful that last year before schools shut down, we were able to teach about 1,000 middle school kids, 1,000 middle school kids in our county 
about healthy relationships and how to avoid sexually risky behavior. I'm thankful they find Marsha's place, but I'm heartbroken that many cannot find a church that they trust. We must repent. We must repent of not lovingly, graciously, mercifully embracing the sexual broken. When we refuse to teach and preach a biblical theology of sex and sexuality, and we fail to embrace those whose hearts and bodies are hurting, are hurting because of sexual brokenness, we're rejecting those that God created in His image and who God has commanded us to love as our neighbor. We need to repent. Thirdly, we need to repent. Thirdly, we need to repent of preaching moralism and forming religious comfort clubs and not making kingdom-minded churches. The purpose of many of our church functions, our classes, our events, the purpose too often is to make us feel good as individuals instead of conforming us to the image of Christ and becoming part of His body. Our society has shifted. Our society has shifted over the past decades And unfortunately, the church has embraced this shift. The shift in society is the comfort of the individual. One person called it the the, the therapeutic culture. Where we have to make each other feel good. That's our supreme goal is the happiness of self. And all of the world has to conform to make sure that I'm happy regardless of the way I want to define or describe myself. Now, that's one thing for the world to do it. It's quite a different thing for the church to do it. As you see in Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that the supreme purpose of a Christian is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29, those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you by the mercies of God Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul tells the Ephesian church that the purpose of a pastor, the purpose of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the measure and the stature, and the fullness of Christ. There's about a hundred other passages that I could quote here, but the point I'm making is that we have capitulated to a culture of individualism and moved from making disciples to making people happy and in the process sending happy people to hell. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The job of the church and the job of the pastor is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. We have become too comfortable. I really want us to think through the major decisions that we make as a church. What are the priorities of those decisions? Is it to grow disciples and confront people with the Word of God or to draw them in and make us feel comfortable and enjoy ourselves? Does our budget, does our bylaws, does our worship service, does our structure, 
Does our fellowship promote the gospel of grace and of conformity to Christ? What about our leadership? Are we holding our elders, our deacons, our teachers, other leaders, ourselves to account for fully fulfilling this biblical calling? Folks, this church, us right here, are about to call a pastor. I ask you, not just the search team, but I ask every single one of us, have we been on our face before the Lord begging for a man of God who will lead us in the Word of God that we would be conformed to the image of God? Or are we just hoping that it's somebody who's nice and I hope I like him? Have we been on our face before the Lord? We've failed to make disciples who live and grow in the knowledge, grace, and hope of Jesus Christ. One preacher I heard said the modern church is producing passionate people filled with empty heads who love a Jesus they don't know very well. We need to repent. We need to repent. Christianity is and will face more and more and more intolerance, and we're not prepared. Another author wrote, a time of painful testing, even persecution is coming. And lukewarm, shallow Christians will not come through with their faith intact. Beloved, we don't know the Word of God like we should. We're not grounded in sound doctrine. We don't know the doctrines of God, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. We don't know the doctrines of the church, of sin, of humanity. We're shallow on the theology of salvation and grace and even repentance that I'm talking of. Many of us don't even know how to pick up our Bibles and read them with depth and clarity. We're so focused on making sure that we're all comfortable, that we're laying down a, a pedal, a rose full of road pedals that's leading to a bed of thorns, of thorns. It's past time we repent of weak churches and weak leadership and begin to teach biblical morality built on biblical truth. We need to repent. Which leads to the fourth point. We need to repent of being anti-abortion, but not pro-life. We need to repent of being anti-abortion, but not pro-life. You see, we live comfortably in our idolatry. Our idolatry of racism, our idolatry of homophobia, our idolatry of xenophobia, of nationalism, sexism, consumerism, materialism, selfishism, and about a thousand more isms. We live comfortably there. We want, and rightly so, listen, we want, and rightly so, we want babies to be born. Unfortunately, though, we don't want to put in the effort to see them raised in godly homes towards healthy lives in well-grounded families. Too often, friends, and please hear my heart, too often the accusations leveled against the church in regard to failing to stand for genuine, true, biblical justice in our culture, too often those accusations are true. Our refusal to talk about sex is just one of the social evils that we refuse to talk about. Because we won't talk about it, we don't talk about sex trafficking. Sex trafficking in our world were an estimated six to 800,000 worldwide victims. Where if every single year in the United States, 15 to 18,000 
internationals are trafficked in our country. In a country where over 200,000 American children are at risk for trafficking in the sexual industry, sex industry, we don't talk about it. And those numbers are 15 years old from the U.S. Justice Department. I don't know what they are today. Our refusal to talk about sex and sexuality in the church translates into a refusal to make disciples in an effort to keep things nice and quiet so we fail to talk about the difficulties of our culture like race and racism. We live in a nation where there is widespread racism. Racism is not just aimed at black Americans but towards Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans and even immigrants. This is evident in many ways but the abortion industry is most telling. Abortion rates among blacks is 270% higher than that of whites. And among Hispanics, it's 180%. Every abortion is a tragedy, but just to put that in context, for every one white baby that's aborted, 27 black babies are and 18 Hispanic babies. Abortion is the number one killer among black Americans, higher than AIDS, violent crimes, accidents, cancer, and heart disease combined. While representing only 13% of the U.S. population, black women account for 35% of the nation's abortions. We don't talk about immigration, especially not illegal immigration. It seems like we're scared to death about it. But not only in our culture and in our churches are we doing anything to actually make a difference in the lives of these men and women and children. The overwhelming majority of whom are seeking asylum or safety or jobs. Not only are we not helping them, but there is evidence that we are beginning to see or they've continued the practice of eugenics against these populations. For those of you who don't know what eugenics is, it is the forced sterilization of those who are deemed undesirable or unfit people. It is without their consent and many times without their knowledge. You say, how does that happen without their knowledge? A doctor tells a patient that she needs a gallbladder removed and in the process he does a hysterectomy. Our nation has a 140-year history of this at least. Can't even begin to make you understand how hated the LGBTQ community feels among those of us who call ourselves Christians. Many times our attitudes, our comments are, are bigoted and hateful and hurtful. They're shallow and they're cliche. I pray, I pray that we, we who indeed are Christians, can find in our heart to actually build meaningful relationships with all people demonstrate genuine kindness towards others, open up our lives to biblical hospitality to people of all races, religions, nationalities, orientations, identities, and actually become pro-life. Yes, we need to be pro-birth. We should help every pregnant woman through her entire pregnancy. But what if? What if when someone got pregnant, planned or unplanned, Whatever the circumstances, married, single, same gender parents or opposite, what if they actually sought out Christian community because they had a true Christian friend they knew loved them 
and would be kind to them. There are so many factors that stand against families today. Generational poverty and dysfunction, lack of education, poor housing, poor nutrition, poor health care or access to it. There's a million of them. And Christians, while we can't do everything, when we genuinely become pro-life, we will do something to add value to the lives and helping others. And I've got to move on to my last point. And I've been building to this point. There's actually a progression in my thoughts. I've started with a symptom. We don't preach sex and sexuality. It's just one symptom, mind you. But I've moved from that symptom and tried to move us towards a root foundational sickness. The reason we're not talking about sex in church is because as soon as we do, we'll have to embrace, embrace the sexually broken. And that's messy. So to avoid real interaction with a broken world, we preach moralism and we form these religious comfort clubs that don't make disciples and form kingdom churches. We function to make ourselves feel good instead of conforming to the image of Christ, being part of His body. And the only people we allow in are those who look like us and live like us and especially those who act like us. The reason for this is that our deepest convictions were more about being morally anti-abortion but not lifelong committed to being pro-life. And we, we live comfortably with our, our idols. Which leads to my final point. We must absolutely repent of missing the gospel. Of missing the actual gospel and replacing it with something less. Recent research has found that 51% of evangelical Christians have never heard of the Great Commission. 51% of evangelical Christians have never heard of go make disciples in Matthew chapter 28. They've never heard of it. And for many of us who have heard of it, we often miss the gospel and we replace it with parts of the biblical story that are important but have no real meaning outside of the gospel. So let me be abundantly clear here, all right? Abundantly clear. The gospel, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you what was first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Peter writes in chapter 1, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, listen, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We need to make clear that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We need to call people to confess and repent of that sin. Yes, 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 but we miss, for some reason we miss that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. We want our salvation somehow to be our work. And yet Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Friends, we preach around the gospel we preach around it a lot, but too often we fail to preach Jesus' death, 
and resurrection as the single hope for redemption. We miss the gospel. Because I'm a teacher at heart, I'm going to take a pause here and teach a lesson, all right? You all repeat after me. It's really easy. Three words. I'm going to say them one at a time first, all right? Jesus died, resurrected. Same all three together. Jesus died, resurrected. You all know the gospel now. You all have heard the gospel now. We can't preach around it. Let's keep preaching about sin. Let's keep preaching about our need for confession. Let's keep preaching about our beliefs and our lostness of eternity. But let's repent of missing the death and resurrection of Jesus and really begin to build every part of our ministry on that. Because when we do, we will preach about sex in church. We will embrace the sexually broken in our community. We will make disciples and not comfort clubs. We will become pro-all life. And so let's go back to the place where we started. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So why this morning do I call the church to repentance? First of all, because the Apostle Paul did. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I did regret it, for I see that it letter grieved you, though only for a little while. But godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul did it. Even more so, I call us to repentance because Jesus did it. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, verse 16, verse 21, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 3, verse 19, Revelation 9, 20, and 21, Revelation 6, verse 9 and 11 are all Jesus calling the church to repent and warning us of what happens when we don't. The very first words that Jesus are recorded in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Next, when we refuse to repent, it brings about God's judgment. Psalm chapter 7 says God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. A man, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Which brings me back to Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The hearers of Jesus thought that somehow they would fare better because their sins weren't as bad as those who suffered these tragic deaths. Jesus quickly taught them otherwise. It's reported, friends, that between six and ten thousand churches shut their doors every year. I've heard numbers much higher than that. I don't know what it is. There's no doubt that thousands upon thousands of churches die every year. In a post from October of October of 2020 in relationship to the pandemic, they said that it was, it was indicated that as many as 20% of churches would close within the next 18 months. Folks, that would be 60,000 churches in our nation. 
I believe the church is closing. Tens of thousands of churches closing. It's an act of God's righteous judgment. We have not repented. And God's sword is wet and His bow is readied. We talk about our nation being judged, and perhaps it is. But more so, I'm concerned about our churches. Here's a radical idea. One of the reasons, one of many reasons, but a primary reason, that many churches die is because we refuse to live life in a posture of repentance. We want to solve these problems in the world, and I'm sure we do. We see a culture, again, 600,000 abortions every year in the U.S., 75 million worldwide. We look at these problems and we say they're too big for us. We need a new president. We need a new governor. We need a new Supreme Court. We need a new Congress. We need new laws, new schools, new, 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 new. Here's my radical idea. We will see significant change in our churches, our communities, our culture, not to mention this church. You will see radical changes in your life, in your family when we repent. I want to close with a quote from John MacArthur, a book from 2018 called Christ's Call to Reform the Church. Here's his words. He says, have you ever heard of a church that repented? Not individuals, but an entire church that collectively recognized its congregational transgressions and openly, genuinely repented with biblical sorrow and brokenness. The fact is that churches rarely repent. Churches that start down a path of worldliness, disobedience, and apostasy typically move even further from orthodoxy over time. They almost never recover their original soundness. Rarely are they broken over their collective sins against the Lord. Rarely do they turn aside from corruption, immorality, and false doctrine. Rarely do they cry out from the depths of their heart for forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. Most never even consider it because they have become comfortable with their, with their condition. He goes on to say the issues that corrupt the churches in the first century are the same threats facing the church today. Idolatry, sexual immorality, compromise with the world, its pagan culture, spiritual deadness, and hypocrisy. Over the intervening centuries, the church has not outgrown those familiar pitfalls, nor has God lowered or softened His righteous standard. Regardless of when and where it is, God demands a pure church. That was His message to the churches in Revelation. Roughly 2,000 years later, Christ is still calling churches to repent and warning us about the dire consequences if they don't. Repentance is only the first step. I'm going to invite our worship team to come and begin to lead us in a time of response. Repentance is the first step. It's not the last. We need to read the Word, study the Word. We need to pray and fast and share the Gospel. We need to relieve suffering. We need to love the broken and outcast. We even need to suffer for the sake of His name. 
of all the things we need to do, though, if we don't repent, we will likewise perish. Abortion is an awful tragedy in our world. It wrecks every life it touches. If you've been affected by an abortion, if it was last year or 30 years ago, you have hope and you have forgiveness. Let me invite you to come to Marcia's place. We can help. If you're facing an unplanned pregnancy or someone in your family is, come talk to us. We can help. If your family or our church would like to learn more about how to have difficult conversations around sex and sexuality, we can help. Church, our first step to changing our world is repentance. For God's people to be broken and humbled and repent. Because if we don't, we will likewise perish. I pray that we, you and I individually, I pray that we as believers, I pray that we will take that step to repent. As we close this down this morning, I want to invite you to a time, we'll call it of invitation. The, the altar is open and I would encourage you to use it. There's a million things we can be praying for right now, but I'm going to invite you to pray for a repentant heart. If it's not up here on the altar, maybe it's right there in your chair. Just turn around and kneel in your chair. Maybe it's right there where you are. Put your head in your lap and let's pray for a repentant heart. We see God move and see God change our community, our, our church, and our culture. It starts in this room with you and me repenting. Father, this morning we give you praise and thanksgiving and worship, knowing that Jesus died for our sins and rose for our salvation, and that by coming to Him, responding with a repentant, believing heart, you have promised us, you have secured for us eternal life. And Father, we know even as Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, we still struggle with this body of sin. And when we do, we need to repent. And so I would pray that together, Father, this morning, this church, we would come before our face, on our face, before you and repent. You would change our hearts, you would change our minds, and then you would send us into this world as a repentant, humble follower of Jesus. That we can love our world, we can love the broken, we can love one another, and we can see your hand at work. Father, move in our hearts this morning. Lead us to you. I'm not going to close this prayer because I'm going to invite you now to join me. <clears throat> Will you pray for a repentant heart? As the worship team begins a song of invitation, I'm just going to ask you to continue to pray. Again, the altar is open. Your chair is open wherever you feel comfortable. Let's spend time with the Lord this morning.
thank you for the gift of repentance. We thank you for eternal life that comes in repentance. We thank you for the sanctity of life that comes in repentance. And we thank you that life has a name, and his name is Jesus. Continue to walk with us and use us for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.